Um, I really didn't even know till this morning when I got over here what we were going to do next. And while my way over here and then in some time in here praying, I really felt impressed for something that God's been working with me on, which is often what preachers preach about is what God's working. That's why it's fresh. Um, so it is another course that I taught in school of ministry, and this is something that's very much overlooked in the church today. Oh, we talk about it. And we, we sing praises about it, and we even get teachings about it, but we really don't live our life based on this. And what we're going to learn, begin to study tonight is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's talked about so much, and He's in our songs, He's in teachings, but if you go back and you look through the first part of the history of the church in the book of Acts, great and mighty things happened. I mean, out of nothing, a ch the church was formed, was birthed. And it was all by the agency, the direction, the power, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then as you go later on in the book of Acts, you notice the miracles begin to get fewer and fewer and farther in between. But you also notice the Holy Spirit's not mentioned very much. In the, in the beginning, He's all over the place. The Spirit said, do this. The Spirit stopped Paul from going here. And the Spirit led them this direction. They were filled with power. Paul said, I came to you, not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the church is missing today. We're missing the power of God. We, it's wonderful to have all the lights. It's wonderful to have all the, all the sound systems. And we've been in churches where they got lights and lasers and smoke. And oh, that's great. But that's no substitute for the Holy Spirit. A ch the church was birthed in the middle of Roman oppression without lasers and all that stuff simply by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is real. I'm going to say that on this side because I know God is real. He's more real than anything you can begin to imagine. And the Holy Spirit's been given to the, to the church as the demonstration of how real God is, how wonderful God is, and how powerful God is. And He's the proof of it. But we don't know how to cooperate with Him. We talk about Him, we sing about Him, but, and then, then there's our own personal lives. And we come to church and we sing about Him and, you know, let the Holy Spirit fall. And we even pray in tongues and we do a lot. But we live a life as if He's somewhere. And we're going to learn He's been put inside of you, not just for the church's purposes, but for your purposes also and for my purposes. And I really believe that it begins by becoming aware of Him. The more you talk about someone, the more aware of them you are, good or bad. And we're going to talk good things about the Holy Spirit. And the more you learn about Him, then the more you learn how to cooperate with Him. We don't have to talk Him into doing anything. He's got to talk us into cooperating with Him. And so often what we're trying to do is get the Holy Spirit to help us to do what we want instead of listening to the Holy Spirit and helping Him do what He wants. And it works much better that way. So we're just going to begin to get into the subject tonight. So to do that, let's pray and ask Him to help us. Father, we come to you tonight in the name of Jesus, and we thank you tonight, Father, that we can come and by the power and anointing of your word open this precious book that's been given to your church, us, to reveal who you are, what you've done, what you've done in us, and what you want to do through us. And we ask you specifically tonight to open up the eyes of our understanding to see the presence, the reality, the nature, the character of the Holy Spirit in us and among us, and especially in and through the church. Father, your word says, and we quote this so often, that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But your spirit's been given to us to reveal those things to us. And he searches even the depths of your heart to bring them up and to reveal to us what you have for us tonight. And so we trust in this very Holy Spirit that we're going to learn about tonight to reveal who He is and why He's here and what He wants to do in us and through us and for us. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Bible, of course, teaches us that God is made up of three parts. And it's, it's really hard to fully understand that. I'm not sure we're capable of understanding that. 
the closest analogy I've ever heard is, is, mo- is water. Water can present itself in three different forms. There's ice, which is hard and cold. There's water, which is melted ice, but it's still water. And then there's vapor, which is evaporated water, but it's still in the atmosphere and the air. So on a foggy day, that's water in the air that's just beginning to condense. Or if you see it on the, on the hood or the windshield of your car, it's water that was in the air that hits the cold, cold windshield and it begins to condense on that windshield. But it's all water, whichever form it's in. So the Bible tells us that, that God is three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all God, but they're, very, but they're different. They have different functions. They have different levels of authority. They have different personalities we're going to learn. But in order to do that, we have to, it, but it's, easy to have, well, it's, we, it's easy to have some kind of concept of Father. We've all had a father. It may have been an absentee father. It may have not have been a good father. It may have been a wonderful father. But you have, we have a, a mental concept of at least what a father is. And, and Jesus is the son. We have a concept of what a son is. So as we begin to relate to Jesus as the son of God, we at least are beginning with some kind of idea of what a son is. We may have to make adjustments just as we may have to the fact that God's our father because God is a loving father, a gracious father. He's also a disciplinarian, but he does it in love. And some of us were raised by parents that disciplined us, but it wasn't in love. So we have to renew our mind to what God's really like. But at least we start with an idea of what a father is. But what do you do with a ghost? And one that's holy. I mean, I grew up watching cartoons of Casper. He was a friendly ghost. But what's this idea of a ghost? And that kind of conjures up this idea of something flimsy out there. You know, the sheet that's floating through the air, or maybe something that they now do in movies where they got, you know, with computer-generated things, and they do all kinds of man's ideas of angels and ghosts and things like that. So we have those images that are floating around inside of us, kind of as we learned in Renewing the Mind. There are images in there that are, that are floating around, but do they really relate to the reality of what the Bible says? Because here's the, here's the issue. The Holy Spirit is more real than a sheet. <laughs> He's more real than Casper, the friendly ghost. So if we begin to get our mind around, all right, there's a spirit out there, and we're going to use the term spirit more than ghost. But, but spirits even kind of are this... Strength. And then you got one that's holy? It just doesn't compute. So when it comes to referring to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, our mind has a more of a problem with that. So we'll begin to imagine things, or we just kind of shut it out and just kind of put him in that compartment where we don't quite understand things yet. And yet he's the vital part of the Godhead for the church. They're all God, but he's the vital part of the Godhead. So we need some understanding. And those of us that have had it, especially through school, we need to be renewed in some of that and brought back to it. And that's what God's been doing with me lately, bringing me back and and, and working on my relationship with the Holy Spirit to to rely on him and trust on him more. So that's why we're going to begin to look at this. His ministry is all through the Bible. It's vital in the Bible. He is um, in the Old Testament. You may not realize that, but he's all through the Old Testament. In fact, he, he, the Holy Spirit starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, because it says the Spirit was hovering over the depths. The very agency which God used to create this universe was done by the agency of the Holy Spirit. He is the power of God that physically carried out God's instructions. So he's there from the very, the very beginning. You may not realize it, but when God parts the Red Sea, it's the Holy Spirit that does the parting. It's the Ruach of God, R-U-A-C-H, the Ruach of God, which means the breath of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God. It's all the same meaning. So the Spirit of God is the mighty east wind that parted the sea, so much so that the Israelites walked through on dry land in the middle of these columns of water, that were a column of water that was, that was dammed up by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be responsible for most of the miracles in the Old Testament. He would come upon a prophet and they would do great things. Samson's power wasn't in his hair. Samson's power was the Holy Spirit in him. The long hair represented his Nazarene vow, his commitment to God, which allowed the Holy Spirit to pour through him. 
And there are many other examples of the Holy Spirit doing mighty things, prophesying through people. When, when Ezekiel is, has his vision of the dry bones which speak to the future of, of Israel ultimately and the future of the church, and he, God's answer is you prophesy over them. And as he prophesied over them, the Spirit of God began to move through the valley and began to take those bones that were, uh, that were disconnected from one another. And they began to rattle. And they began to move together. And, and, and Harvey's, Harvey's femur began to find Harvey's ankle bone. And, 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 or, and whichever one it is. And they began to line up in the right place. And then they began to, 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 muscle began to grow in them. And sinew and tissue. And then skin. And they began to stand upright. And he prophesied again. And the Spirit of God breathed into this mighty dead nation and brought it alive. It's prefiguring what the Holy Spirit's going to do in the last day that He's going to bring it alive. And then we move into the New Testament. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, comes to earth, walks among us for three years, actually for, th- for 30 years, and doesn't do any miracles. He's a good boy. He never violates the law. He's a perfect man, but He never does any miracles. Because you see, in Philippians chapter 2, we see that when He left heaven to come and be born in, in, in Bethlehem, He laid aside all His power and all His glory. He laid it aside. The term there is kenosis, which means an emptying out. He emptied Himself of His glory. In other words, He emptied Himself of His divine power, His divine glory. He left that in heaven to become a man. He was still God and He's still man, but all all His advantages He left up there. You say, why did He do that? We'll explain that in a minute. So for 30 years, he walk, grows up, walks among us, he becomes a carpenter's son, becomes a carpenter, and then at 33, about 30 years of age, at the appointed time, he goes out to be baptized by John the Baptist, as was, as was under the law to be done. And it was a baptism for purification. It was a baptism to, to symbolize the washing away of sins. And John the Baptist, who, by the way, had, was filled with the Holy Spirit at the time, looks at him and recognizes who he is, and he says, no, no, I, you, I shouldn't be, be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, we must fulfill what the prophecy said. And so Jesus goes down in the water, and when he comes back up, heavens opens. And, a, and, a, and the Holy Spirit descends down out of heaven. Because up until this point, he'd come down for an occasion, but he'd leave, but he didn't stay. Now he comes down. And if you read it in, I think it's Luke's account, he came down as a dove. He's not a dove. He's much more powerful than a dove. He came down the way a dove would come down. The way a dove would descend is to kind of soar around like that. He didn't go like that. He just very gently and softly came down and settled on him. And Jesus at that point was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the Father speaks out of heaven. That's why we know there's three parts to God, because in that scene, you got them all there. you got the Son coming up out of the water, you've got the Spirit descending on Him, and you've got the Father speaking from heaven. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And if we were to take the time to go over into Galatians, you'll find out when God puts His Spirit in you, God's giving that same sign of approval that He gave over that first son, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So if the Spirit of God's living in you, that's the proof of God's approval of you in Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And from that moment on, Jesus began to perform miracles. Say, why didn't he just come down out as the Son of God and perform miracles? Because then we would make him, we'd, we'd put him in stained glass windows. We'd make idols of him and worship what he did and say, but we can't ever do anything like that. Jesus was a prototype of a Christian. The Bible calls him the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus is the firstborn. He's the reason we can be. But when you come to Christ, literally what happens is God comes to live inside of you, but He doesn't step off the throne and come down in you. Jesus doesn't come off the second off the, off the, His throne on the right hand of the Father and come down in you. The same Spirit that came into Him comes into you now and brings you in union with Him. That's why Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works that you do. Because the works that Jesus did, the miracles He did, was the Spirit of God in Him doing those works. And we'll look at that. This is kind of an, an overview that we're giving you tonight of why this is important. 
So Jesus was the prototype of what we're to be like, which is why He said, the things I do, you go do. That the prototype is the, gives the example for what the antitype is supposed to do. Go do those things that I told you, that I did, and I've proven you that you can do them. And He would get frustrated with his disciples because they weren't getting it. But once, and then what happens at the end of His ministry here, He goes to the cross, He's raised from the dead, He comes back, and He tells His disciples this amazing bit of instruction. He said, you walk with me for three years. I trained you. I taught you. I trained you. I sent you out on missions. You came back. I made adjustments and corrections. I showed you what did you did wrong. And you did my use. The, the, the 5,000 were fed. You distributed it. You cast out demons. You went and raised the dead. You went and performed miracles because I sent you out to do that. But you still don't have enough. With all this that I've done for you, dying for you, paying for your sins, giving you my righteousness, being raised from the dead, still not enough. You need one more important ingredient, and this is what the church skips. Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And the church is running out trying to do His works without being endued with the power from on high. We have Him in us, most of us, but we're not cooperating with Him. We're not even conscious of Him, we run out and try to do the works in our own strength and not in the anointing of the Spirit of God. And Jesus never told us to do it in our own strength. He said, you need power from on high. And that's what we're going to look at. That's the focus of what we're going to study. So Jesus, Jesus comes now and then He turns this ministry over to the church and the Holy Spirit is the major agent of all of that. And there's nothing I've read in my Bible or I think you can find in your Bible that says that ends anywhere. Because the book of Acts is the one book that hasn't finished yet. It's the story of the church. And the church, church's story is not over yet. And we're part of that. Amen? Okay. So, in the early church, all the works that they did, they did, under the, again, I mentioned it a few minutes ago. They, 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 were, they, were, they didn't do anything unless the Spirit told them to do it. In Acts chapter 13, when there's a major change taking place, when the center of the church is being moved from Jerusalem up into, in, into Antioch, and they're waiting there, and they're waiting for instructions from the Holy Spirit, and they're fasting and praying, they're not going to figure out, they didn't have a council meeting, they didn't have a committee meeting, they didn't vote on something, they're waiting for instructions. Because you've got to understand, they didn't know anything. They didn't have a New Testament the way, they were writing it, they didn't have it. They didn't have boards, they didn't have committees, they didn't have organizations, they didn't have denominations, they didn't have men sitting together coming up with good ideas of how to do things. They didn't have anything, they had no clue what they were doing. And you know what? There are sometimes that's the best place to be. Not always, but there are times the best place to be is, I have no idea what to do. Because then we have to wait for instructions, we have to trust God. The greatest place of peace is when you're out on the end of that limb and it's just been cut off out from underneath you when the only thing that can hold you up is God. You can't figure out what to do. You have no concept of what to do. But then you'll find out what God will do. And the reason you'll be able to find out is because you have to trust Him. You don't have 14 choices. And God's last. And so that's where they were. They had no clue what to do. The only instruction they had is don't do anything until you're close. And they didn't really know what that was. So they're just waiting. And they're not just waiting, you know, on their iPhone, finding out what the latest app is. They're praying. They're fasting and praying. They're waiting. They're, ex they're expecting something. They don't know what it is, but they're expecting God to do something. The church has lost its expectancy. We've lost this anticipation. God's going to do something. And yet... There is as great a need out there today as there was when Jesus, at the time we're talking about. They were expecting. They were anticipating. They didn't know what it was going to be today or tomorrow or next month or next year. They just knew it was going to come. And they were going to wait there. Here's the key. They were going to wait there until it happened because they had no other choice. No other option. It was the most important thing to them. And part of what we're learning on Sunday mornings is the right priorities. The right priorities. What's really vital in our life? 
What's really, really vital? Because that's what we give our time to. I'll give you a little clue. I'll give you a heads up because you're here tonight and the other people aren't. So you'll know ahead on Sunday. If you want to know what your priority is, you look at your schedule and you look at your checkbook. It's where you spend the two most valuable things you have, time and money. Where are you spending your time and where are you spending your money? Your, your time that's free to do whatever you want to do with. Because when you're at work, you're supposed to be working, right? That was pretty weak. <laughs> when you're at work, you're supposed to be working, not reading your Bible, not witnessing, except on the lunch break, but work. You're supposed to be a witness for Christ. And one, the best witness we should be on work is we should be the best worker that they have. Whether the most skilled or not, we ought to be the most faithful. We ought to show up early. We ought to show up with a great attitude. Well, I'm here to help you, whatever that means, whatever that takes. When I was in, uh, we were in Bible school and I was, uh, had, I was practicing law part-time out there. And the, I was in a law, small law firm and I went to them. They didn't have enough space to give me an office. So my office was the supply closet. And I had two people in there with me. They were clerks in law school. And I just come out of a large, prestigious firm in Boston. And you know what? My attitude was, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. But by the time I left that firm, I had the biggest, nicest office in the place. That's not, that wasn't important to me, because my attitude was, I'm here to be a blessing. I'm here to help. I, I don't know who that was for tonight, but that's, that's for somebody tonight. And so, so, how did I get off on that? Who led me off on that? Okay. What? Holy Spirit took me there. Yeah, see, talk about Him and see what happens. <laughs> All right. I know what I was talking about was important. So, uh, Oh, they were being led by the Spirit. So they didn't know what else to do. And so we got to come back to that expectancy because we're really no better off than they are because we don't know what's coming next. We don't know what's going to come next. All we know is the pr- provision that God has given us is that Word and His Spirit inside. That's the provision God's given the church. It's not our denominations. It's not our committees. It's not our internet you know, websites. It's not all those things we have. And they can be useful tools. But what God's given the church is His Word and the Spirit. And we better not be pulled away from relying on His Spirit and the Word because that's what God's given to the church. And as long as we are based on that, We'll keep everything else in this right perspective. All right. So, the early church did everything by His direction and by His ability, and they knew it. Also keep in mind that who we're talking about is one-third of the Godhead. Back in the fall when Marilyn Newbert was here, and she did a, a seminar on Saturday morning about, about healing. And one of the things she said that really I felt had an impact on us well, she said, do you understand that when you're dealing with issues, and she was talking about health issues at the time, you're dealing with issues you have inside of you right now, not in heaven, you have inside of you right now one-third of God. One-third of God's knowledge, one-third of God's ability, one-third of God's... One-third of who God is, who God is, is living inside of you now. And see, if that were more real to us, if He were more real to us, it would change how you go through your day. And we're going to talk about that. It would change how you deal with crises. It would change how you deal with pressure. It would change how you deal with that boss that's not quite so loving and nice. Obviously, that's not here at church. Um, it's, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> if I got to tell you it was supposed to be funny, I guess it wasn't. It, 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 will, it will change how you deal with everything. It will change how you get up in the morning. And that's one of the purposes for this study. All right. Now, He is the part of God living inside of us. I want to look at some scriptures that talk about this because I want to show you scriptures that we know, but I want to show you that, what His role in this is. So go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Paul refers to Him a lot. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. There it is. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of His mystery. 
Paul, especially in Colossians and Ephesians, those first couple of chapters, I mean, each, each verse is a mouthful. And not just a mouthful, but they're, it's, it's, they're rich with truth. To them, God willed to make known. So God wanted to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is this mystery? What is the mystery God wants to reveal? And, and to a large extent, it's still not revealed to us, but God wants to. See, God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. So it's not just a mystery. It's a mystery that has glory in it. And the glory is rich in glory. So God doesn't know anything that's cheap. God's not a cheapskate. God doesn't just meet things out. God is extravagant. He's been extravagant with His love. He's extravagant with His grace. He's been extravagant with His universe that we live in. He's extravagant with everything He does. You are an extravagant creation. With all our computers and all our brains and all our... They're still trying to figure out how this thing works completely. And all they do is discover things God had already made. Man doesn't create anything. He discovers things God allows him to discover that God's already made. So whatever God reveals, His glory's in this revelation. His glory's in this. The universe is filled with God's glory. The Psalms say that. It's just that we walk around all day long not looking at it. Or we, oh, that was a nice sunset. Instead of marvel. You know, you need to take time to, to treasure the incredible beauty that God has created around us. Whatever the season we're in. To treasure it. And if you begin to look at it that way, the Spirit of God in you will begin to open the eyes of your understanding to see the glory of God all around you. But when we walk through our day, as so many of us do, with our head down, going one step at a time, I got to go to work, I got to go out, I got to get this done, I got all these things to do on my wife's to do list, I got to do this, I got to make a living, I got to, we take everything for granted, all miracles around us all the time, and we miss them. We miss them. We come to the end of our life and we've missed all these opportunities. And I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me in heaven if when God replays our life, He said, You see that? I, sure, I did that just for you. That sunset, you were the only one from that angle who could see that at that time, and I did it just for you, because I love you. I, wanted to, I just wanted to, I wanted to show you how much I love you, but you were too busy. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of His mystery. So He's talking about is a mystery that God will, wants to make known among the Gentiles. That's the people that, that's us, that's the non-Jews that didn't have a covenant with God. And what is this mystery? Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. We're going to see in a few minutes. The hope we have for the future is not a someday I hope so. God's given us a down payment to prove that that hope is a real, solid, substantial hope. And part of it is Christ in you the hope of glory. But the Bible tells us He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So how can He be seated at the right hand of the Father and be, well, not only that, how can it be in me, me and also in Bruce and in Denny? And in Steve and the wind. How, how, can, how can it be in me and how can it be in you? Because the way Christ is in me is by the Holy Spirit. That is Christ in me. That is Christ in you. That is how we're, well, we'll see, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, well-known verse. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. We have a little book in the bookstore, and I hesitate to mention it because I don't know how many of these we have in there tonight. But my wife's warned, I don't care how many of these out. She carries it in her Bible. It's a little book by Kenneth Hagin, a little mini book called In Christ or In Him, and it has every reference to In Him, In Christ, or anything that is basically communicating that. And it's hundreds of them, all through the New Testament, that everything we have is because we are in Christ. But how am I 
in Christ. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You have a new start if you're in Christ. But how can I be in Christ if he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Because what we're going to learn is the way you're joined to Christ and he's joined to you is the same spirit that's his is in you. Christ's presence in you is the Holy Spirit in you. He is God's presence in you, Christ's presence in you. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. There are many others we could use. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He's talking here about being dominated by the flesh or dominated by the Spirit. And he says, but, but if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you're not His. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not His. So the proof that you belong to God is His Spirit lives in you. We'll talk about how you can know that. But, but the evidence, the proof... That you are a child of God, just as when Jesus spoke out, God the Father spoke out of heaven and said, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, when the Spirit of God descended on him, the evidence that you are that you are, are God's child is his spirit is dwelling in you. He is the presence of God, the presence of Christ in you. One more. Let's go to John chapter 17. There are many more we could look at. John chapter 17. This is part of a prayer. In the first few verses, Jesus, this, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's had his last instructions with his disciples. He's had his last Passover meal with them. And he now goes out into the Mount of Olives and he begins to pray. And he starts to talk to the Father. First of all, we're not going to take the time to go back and look there. He says, the glory that I had before, I'm asking you to return to me. So obviously he had something before. He left in heaven and now he's asking for it back again. And then he goes on and talks about these disciples that he had. And he prays for them. And then starting in verse 20, he now prays for, I pray, not, I do not pray for these alone. The these alone are the disciples, the 11 that are left now. Judas is left. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's you and me. Because one of those he's praying about before that is John. And we're looking in the book of John. And one of them is Matthew. We can look in the book of Matthew. Now Luke and Mark are not among these disciples. They're later disciples. But So he's now beginning to pray for us. And what's his prayer? that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow, let's take that apart. I used to look at that and just, my, my brain would just go in circles. I mean, it sounds beautiful, but what does it mean? How does it translate it into my life? And that's what we're looking at in this course. We're looking at not theology, but how does this translate into my life tomorrow morning when a sudden problem runs up at work? Or you get up and your wife might look at you the wrong way or you might look at her the wrong way. That they may all be one. Leave that aside for a minute. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. So apparently this oneness is that we're in each other. Okay, how does that work? Especially since there's such a diversity in this church. Diversity of ages, sizes, nationalities, let alone in the body of Christ itself. That they all may be one, and now here's the key. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. I used to read that and say, all right, how's the Father in Jesus, or Jesus in the Father? Maybe this is just some symbolic thing of they're real close. You know, they're just really close. We're, we're one. 
You know, we're just all one together. We're one. We're in agreement on what we're doing here, and they are. We're in agreement. We just, you know, we love each other, and they did. They had. A, there's a, if you read, and it's interesting to, to read the Gospels with this perspective, the Father and the Son are this mutual admiration society. The Father was saying off and over again, you know, this is my beloved, this is my boy. This is my beloved son, no one will please. And Jesus would turn and somebody said to him, good man, oh no, no, there's no one good. My goodness comes from him. The only time Jesus ever got upset at anybody was for the Father's benefit, never for his. And so, but it's, not, it's more than that. If you just think this is some symbolic unity, you're going to miss it. Because then we have a symbolic unity. Then our unity is based on, well, we all love Jesus. Our unity is based on, we all love Faith Christian Center. Our unity, it is not. I mean, this church is a great example of that, that the unity of the body of Christ has nothing to do with anything other than one thing. The reason the Father was one with the Son is the same Spirit was in both of them. See, the thing about a Spirit is He can be in more than one place at the same time. So the unity between the Father and the Son is that they're united together. They're joined together. They're one because they are one in different forms, but they're one. And he says that we may be one in the same way. How can that be? That they may also be one in us. Notice the key importance here, that the world may believe that you sent me. So the key... For the world to believe that God sent Jesus as His Son is the way you and I relate to each other. And it's not just that we get along. It's not just that we get along. Over in um, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17 and on, chapter 4 begins by talking about unity. It says, don't you understand that there's just one God? And there's just one spirit. And there's just one body of Christ. There's not the Catholic body. There's not the Presbyterian body. There's not the Episcopal body. I mean, they're not all in the body. But there's not the Baptist body. There's not, you know, I love what Bob Gash used to say. When you get to heaven, those labels fall off. And if you go to hell, they burn off. But regardless, in either place, there's no labels. God doesn't have a quota of Baptists and a quota of Pentecostals and a quota of... of there's just a, they're just different ways of looking at aspects of it. It's, it's not our theology that joins us together. But, the, but what he's saying here, put that verse back up. What he's saying here is this. The way the world's going to know that I'm real is when I see the unity, when they see the unity in my body. And it's not the unity because we've all confessed to the same creed. Because he goes on in Ephesians 4, having talked about this unity, and then he tells us how that's lived out. And one of the examples, he says, therefore don't lie to one another anymore. Why? Because don't you know you're members of each other? He doesn't say don't lie to each other because it's not good to lie. He doesn't say don't lie to one another because you're deceiving each other. And they're all true. He doesn't say don't lie to one another because you're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. That's true. But he says, look, you ought to know even better than that. It's not because it's in the commandments. It's because you don't understand yet who you really are together, that we are literally one body in Christ. But what makes us one isn't the color of our skin. It's not our height, our sex, our nationality. What makes us one is the same spirit that lives in me lives in you. I've never forgotten this, and I'm sure some of you have had this experience. When I was first saved, I had no clue what was happening. No clue. I wasn't saved in a church. I was saved in my living room. I then went to a church that began to teach me what happened to me, but I had no idea what happened to me. All I know is that I began to meet, and there weren't a lot of them in Boston at the time, especially among lawyers, but I began to meet some other people in Boston that were Christians. It was the strangest thing because I would instantly feel closer to them than my family. I'd known my whole year, my whole life. And I think, isn't that weird? There's something that I feel, and, and it's not like we were all lawyers gathering together. I mean, the first one I discovered in my law firm was, was a secretary, a new secretary. And to my knowledge, in this 150-person firm, that was the only other Christian I knew, never met. But I began to meet other people in Boston. We were of different economic positions, different education. But, but when we would come together for a Bible study, we were all one. 
that it's, oh, there's that lawyer from the big firm. We were all one. We were all hungry, reading the Word of God, praying together, worshiping God together. What bound us together, and we didn't understand that, was the same Spirit in me, recognizes the same Spirit in you. That's proof. But what Paul is saying is, you need to live your life based on this. If we went on to, if we go on and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, before 17, verse 16 or so, Paul talks about the fact that, that we used to know Christ when he walked on this earth after the flesh. In other words, they, knew, they could recognize it was Jesus because they could see the color, they could see what he looked like. But we don't recognize him that when he wore because he's not walking around wearing flesh that way. He says, in the same way, we're to recognize one another differently. And then it goes into verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So what Paul's saying is the only way we're to identify, recognize each other is, is Tim's a new creature. Pat's a new creature. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry's a new creature. That's the only way we're looking at it. We're new creatures in Christ. We all belong together. But that unity is the whole point is what, what actually makes us one. It's not a symbolic thing. It is more real than the color of your hair, the color of your eyes. The reality is the Spirit of God in you is what joins us together, which is why any kind of factions, any kind of strife grieves the Spirit of God because it's pulling at this unity. It's trying to make a break in this unity, and He is that unity that binds us together. He is that unity. Go on to verse 22. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. We're going to find that the glory that God's talking about isn't something that's going to drop out of heaven in the middle of some service Sunday morning. First service. No, I'm kidding. It's not something that's going to suddenly drop. That glory is in us. You understand that the resurrection power that's going to raise people from the dead doesn't drop out of heaven? It comes out of you. That healing comes out of you. Healing's not something that's dropped as a tender mercy from heaven. It's a cute song, but it's not scriptural. The life of God is in you now. You're not getting it. The life of God. We're going to talk about that too. The life of God. Life at the level God lives. Uh, you need to, life at the level God lives. Is God afraid? Can you imagine? God, Jesus didn't, he, he wasn't afraid. No matter what, they're driving nails in him and he's not afraid. Never lost his peace. Never lost his joy. That's what the life of God is like to the nth degree. And that life is living in you now. The Holy Spirit. So somehow we're not in touch with Him. Somehow we're not in touch with Him, not cooperating with Him, but the potential is in there as when we studied in renewing the mind. All that God put in us in the kingdom of God. It requires us to renew our mind. Well, this is what we're doing. We're going to begin the new subject to renew our mind is who the Holy Spirit is in you, in me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them. Not when they get to heaven. I've given it to them that they may be one as we are one. That glory that God gave you, His glory that Moses stood in the presence of and said, Lord, may I see your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. But I'll, I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand, and I'll pass by and you can get a peek at the back of my glory. And Moses went down off the mountain and nobody could stand in his presence. It saturated his face. It saturated his clothes. Had to put a veil over his face. Just the reflected glory. The anointing. That anointing is in you now. That glory is in you now because what makes us one is the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. I in them. This incredible verse. Jesus is like, I'm in them. And you're in me, Father, that they may be made complete, that word perfect means complete, in one, and that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them just as you love me. Wow. That's all done by the presence of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit living in you. God's Spirit living in you. All right. 
So He is what joins us to one another, what joins us to Christ, and what joins us to the Father. He is the point of unity that we have together, the unity we have with God. He is God living in us. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. He's, more, he's also more than that. That's pretty good. Now Paul talks about here things we don't like so much. Verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You have to understand that hope in the New Testament, that Greek word doesn't mean hope the way we so often mean it, which is, I hope it stops raining tomorrow. I, I hope the Patriots do better next year. I hope, you know, I just, it's expressing a desire. This word means confident, certain expectation. I know it's happening. I can't wait for it to happen. It's confidence. So we rejoice in confidence of the glory of God. Verse 3. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> it was nice up to here. But Paul must understand something we don't understand because this is the Word of God. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or steadfastness. And perseverance or steadfastness produces character. Some translations say proven character. And character or proven character produces hope or confident expectation. Now this hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What that, that verse is often quoted to say, well, we can love one another because God's put His love in us by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that says that, but that's not the point he's making here. Paul's point he's making here is, the, is why we can have hope in whatever your situation is. Why we can have hope now and why we can have hope for the future. Remember, hope is the anchor of your soul. It was what keeps you steady in a storm. Pastor Sam Smucker last fall preached a great message on a Wednesday night about anchors and Paul's story of, of going through a terrible storm on his way to Rome. They threw the anchors over and the anchors bring stability to a ship that's being tossed to and fro in the waves. And that represents your life and my life going through a storm and hope is that anchor. Interesting because the, 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 the flag for Rhode Island has an anchor on it and its motto is hope. So I wonder what their hope, the anchor it's hoping in today is. But the real anchor is Christ. <clears throat> so, but He's poured out our, in our hearts the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What that verse is saying is the reason we can have hope of God's love for us no matter what we're going through is God's demonstrated this love by already putting His Spirit in us ahead of time. His Spirit in you is evidence of His love for you. Just as His Spirit in Jesus was, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. His Spirit in you is the tangible proof of God's love for you. Now, His Spirit in you enables you to love others, but he's, the point here is he, that He is the proof, the basis of your hope that everything else God said is true. Well, let's look at some other scriptures. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 20. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. All the promises of God. Say all. all. Oh, say it better. All. all. All the promises of God in Him are what? I got so mad the other day. I heard somebody saying, God always answers prayers. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. I wanted to yell, you need to read your Bible. All the promises of God in Christ are yes. If you, the context here is that the, the Corinthians had accused Paul of being double-minded. Saying some things one time and something, saying he was coming, then saying he wasn't coming, saying he was going to handle things one way. And he was trying to say, there's not, in God, there's not yes and no. God doesn't play games with us. He doesn't say one thing and mean something else. Jesus used that example in Matthew chapter 7. He says, you know, look, you, you guys as fathers are, are not so good compared to God as a father, but even you guys, if your son came to you and asked you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a rock and say, go eat this rock. You're not going to play a game with him. If he asks you for fish, you're not going to give him a snake, are you? 
Well, if you are being evil compared to God, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? All the promises of God in Christ are yes. That means they're fulfilled in Christ. And in Him, in Christ, amen. That's, we tack that at the end of prayers. That literally is a Greek word that means so be it. It's a reinforcement. In Him is yes, so be it. To the glory of God through us. All right, verse 21. Now He who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. God's the one that's given us the seal of our ministry. Who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word sealed in the old days when, a, when a, an official would write an official document or letter and send it, he had a ring on called a signet ring. And people, some people still wear those today. But that really was significant of something. The way you knew this was really from him is they would pour wax, sealing wax, sealing wax, not for the sealing, but for the purpose of sealing the document. And they would stamp it with that seal, that signet, that only that official could have had because it had to come from his ring. So it was a sign that this was genuinely his. Genuinely his. And that's what this word is referring to us. God has put his mark on you. Now, under the Old Testament, that mark was the rite of circumcision, which was a physical cutting of the flesh. So you could tell whether somebody had a covenant with God or not, a male, by whether they were circumcised or not. But this is a spiritual seal. You and I can't see it with our natural eyes, but if we could suddenly have the veil pulled back and we could see in the spirit realm, you could see immediately in this room who belongs to God and who doesn't. Because the spirit in you is the seal, the mark of his ownership of you, of you belong to him. But let's look at that word guarantee. He has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word in Greek is arbon. It literally means a down payment. Or another term is, you ready ladies, an engagement ring. Now in the past when we've had Valentine dinners and we've opened them up to married couples and engaged couples, we announce what we mean by engaged is there's a ring on the finger. Because that ring signifies his intentions are real. You can tell me you love me all, the one, all you want, but when you go spend some bucks on me, now I know you're serious. And I suggest to you, God has spent some serious bucks on you. In fact, the Bible says he's emptied his pockets out for you. Romans 8.32, If he spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how we not also together with him freely give us all things. That word guarantee means a down payment. If you ever go buy a house or you go buy a car, they want to know you're serious before they go do the paperwork, so they want cash. They want a down payment. And what a down payment is sometimes called earnest money. It means money to show I'm earnest about this. I'm serious. And it's always given in the form in which you're going to pay the rest of the money, the rest of the, of the purchase price. The Spirit of God is God's down payment for all the rest of His promises. All of heaven, all of the glory, all of God's promises, He didn't just want you to trust Him, and that would have been good enough, because His Word is good. He cannot lie. But not just given us His Word, He's given us His Spirit as our tangible evidence and guarantee that God loves you, that you belong to Him, and that the hope that He's promised you of heaven and all that comes is coming is true, and the hope that His promises will be carried out. The hope that His promises will be carried out. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, we've got to move along quickly. I'll have to summarize this for you. Paul's talking about death here. And he says, if, I, if this earthly house... Is a, which is a tent, is destroyed. We have a building from God. That's our resurrected body, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this house we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is in heaven. With our, you know, Because this body is the one that gives you trouble. The only temptation you have to eat things, drink things, and smoke things you shouldn't smoke or inject all come from desires of this body. 
And so when you have a new body, they don't have that, that desires. This thing has to be washed, cleaned, bathed, checked out, done all kinds of things with, exercised. That one doesn't need all that attention because it's eternal. And, 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 and this one gets tired, that one doesn't get tired. And we could go on and on and on. For indeed, verse 3, having been clothed, we shall be found naked. Not be found naked. I've got to go on here. All right. What he goes down here to say um, in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee that the resurrection is the truth. The proof, the, the, the evidence that the resurrection is the real is he's put the power of the resurrection in you now. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to have to shorten this down. In John 16, 7, don't turn there, but Jesus says something. He says, it's, for your, it's important for you that I leave now because when I leave, I'm going to send, ask the Father, and He's going to send another helper. Put, start this slide up there. And in this word in Greek, is the Greek word paraclete, not parakeet. Parakeet's a little bird, it's yellow and cheeps. Paraclete is not a little bird. But I want to go through very quickly what this word paraclete means. It literally means in Greek, someone that's been called alongside of you to help you in whatever it is that you need. The Amplified breaks this down with seven different attributes. And what I want to end is by going through these because the Spirit of God in you is these things for you. Hit the first one. He is your comforter. So if you're mourning, if your Bible says He comforts those that mourn, God comforts you because the comforter lives inside of you. If you're hurting, if you're wounded, if you're lonely, that He comforts you. Turn, learn, and this is what we're going to learn to do. We're going to learn instead of rushing to the phone, going on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever you go on to get your comfort to turn inside because God's comforter is inside of you. And He knows just what to say. Sometimes you turn to somebody else and they'll say the wrong thing with the right intention. Next thing. He's your counselor. Again, who do we turn to when we suddenly need help? Pick up the phone, go online. Who, do you, who, do you, who are you looking for for counsel and advice? That's the first one you should turn to is the Holy Spirit. This helper means he's a counselor, he's a comforter. The next thing. He's your helper. I asked God what, comes that, when, what does that mean when I was teaching on the ministry of helps. Lord, what, is, what does help mean? And the Lord, he's so, he's so smart. He says, whatever helps. <laughs> it's pretty simple, isn't it? So whatever you need help with, He's your help. And remember, as we go through these things, remember who this is. This is God. With all that God knows, all that God can do, He's your comforter. He's your, he can put His arms around you in places nobody else can touch. He can heal you in places nobody you don't even know you have. He can heal you there. He can give you counsel and wisdom because He knows everything. You know God never has an idea. Because to have an idea, has got to get it from somewhere. He knows everything. He never says, oh, I never thought of that before. He's your helper. Next one. He's your advocate. I could tell you stories of being in a trial. In a trial. I, wasn't the I was the lawyer. Having absolutely impossible situations. And when I went, I got outside the courtroom, I got quiet and I listened inside and the Holy Spirit told me who to put on the stand and who to ask the question to. And it turned the entire case around and I had that happen more than once. So He's your advocate, not just in court. He'll, instead of defending yourself, let the Spirit of God inside of you defend you. God's a much better defender than you are. Next one. He's your intercessor. Ever, ever make a mistake? Ever do something wrong and you need somebody to pray for you? It's great to have prayer lines. We've got a prayer team here. But you've got one inside of you already praying for you. Already praying for you. Next one. He's your strengthener. He's your strengthener. God arrested me a while ago because I was saying how tired I was all the time. There's no wonder I was feeling tired. I was telling myself how tired I was. I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. How do you feel? I'm tired. I'm tired. And I got God's strength inside of me. God's life, and Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that's in you. Last one, because we've got to end. 
He's your standby. What standby means? Whatever you're going to need. He's there ready. He's at the alert. He's ready. When you sleep, He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He's alert. And if you will learn to listen to Him, He'll prepare you for things that are going to come. He'll prepare you for things that are going to come. There's something that, that's happened now. There's something that, that, that God was dealing with me a while. Start reading these scriptures. Start reading these scriptures. Start reading. For a while I resisted. Then I started, well, I better read them. So I've been reading them and reading them and reading them. No idea why. And suddenly I see why. God's preparing me for something. Getting me ready for something. He's your standby. We'll go over this again. This is just kind of an introduction. Let's pray. Oh, we've got to pray it in. Father, we thank you. We ask you as we end tonight that you begin to open our eyes to see who it is that you put inside of us 24 hours a day. And we ask you, Lord, to teach us in the issues of our lives to learn to turn on the inside, to be learn to be sensitive to his voice and to learn to listen to his direction and to rely and trust upon him because we know that he is faithful. And we thank you for this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.